If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 this morning, and you can find it on page 921 in the Pew Bibles. We are at war. And in case you're starting to freak out a little bit and just wish that you would have checked the news this morning, I don't mean a political war. This is a war that we face every day, but it's often a war that goes unnoticed. It's not a war that we face in front of the bathroom mirror every morning against age or halitosis. It's not the war for the messiness of our house or, or for the affections of our spouses or for the obedience of our children. It's not the war of the workplace against just time demands and constraints and the demands of frustrating bosses. And it's not the culture wars that we see raging in social media all around us. This war that we face is much, much more significant. This war is ceaseless, it's tireless, constantly raging around us, but often it receives far, far less attention than all of those other battles that I just mentioned. We are at war for souls, both ours and for the souls of others. One of the ways that this war of souls is often described in Scripture, is in terms of darkness versus light. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. But in our sin, in our rebellion, in our disobedience, in our rejection of God, we have chosen the darkness over the light. We love the darkness. We want to live in the darkness because we don't want to admit the evil that resides in our hearts. We don't want the wickedness of our hearts to be exposed. And so we subject ourselves to darkness, to deceit, to confusion, to impurity, to unrighteousness, that, to that which is counter to the very nature and character, the purposes and promises of God. That which gains us nothing, but in the end, death, not just physically, but eternally. That's the world that we chose. That's the world that we live in. The world that Scripture calls the domain of darkness. And you and I and everybody start out there. But by God's grace, light came into the world and darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light of the world and all who follow him will not walk in darkness but that doesn't mean that the darkness won't try to overtake them. It doesn't mean that the darkness won't try to have fellowship with them. It doesn't mean that, that the darkness won't try to get them to turn away from the light and back to the darkness. And so we have to fight every single day over and over again to cast off the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light as children of light, to stand against the schemes of the devil. We are to walk in the light, to have fellowship with the light, to proclaim the light, to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them to the light. And this war of light over darkness is a battle that we face in countless ways every single day, whether that be in front of the bathroom mirror or in our homes or at work or any and everywhere in between. It's a war that we are fighting right now. At least I hope we're fighting it. And it's a war that we're fighting not just for ourselves, but for the souls of others. Missions, whether that be local evangelism or the proclamation of the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ to other peoples, other nations, other languages, other tribes, is also a war of light over darkness. We are to let our light shine before others so that they see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who made us children of light so that we can now be a light to the nations. And so our priority in missions is to overcome darkness with the light of the gospel. 
both in our own hearts and in the hearts of all peoples. That's the way that the Apostle Paul describes his own ministry in Acts 26. As he recounts his conversion and his call to ministry to King Herod Agrippa II, he told of how the risen Lord Jesus appointed him to open the eyes of the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they might receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. That's how he describes his own mission in terms of light over darkness. And so as we come now to Paul's first missionary journey here in Acts 13, Know that God's purposes in sending his children of light into the domain of darkness is so that through the proclamation of the gospel and the protection against darkness of the church, the light would prevail. The light would spread. The light would overcome. This is how we are to think about our war This is how we are to think about the church. This is how we are to think about missions. And what we're going to see this morning from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, is that our mission is to overcome darkness with the light of the gospel. Our mission is to overcome darkness with the light of the gospel. And so as we read this text, may we see the light and be the light. So if you would, read with me Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now friends, I hope that what you see here is that that there is a war, there's a battle going on between the light of the gospel and the darkness that would attempt to overtake it. Between Paul and this man named Elymas, this magician, between the son of God and a son of the devil, between the truth and righteousness and purity of the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit and the false teaching of this devious magician who walked in darkness and desired to keep others in the same place. The church exists to proclaim the gospel so that the children of light might walk in the light and missions exist so that these children of light might proclaim the gospel to the nations that are held captive under the domain of darkness. But despite the overwhelming odds, as these three men seek to spread the gospel throughout a world of darkness, light will not be overcome. The gospel is an unstoppable force. 
And so, since this is a war between light and darkness, how should we think about our priority in missions? Well, in missions, we proclaim the light and we protect against darkness. And so first, let's think about what it means to proclaim the light. The church does not exist for your comfort or for your entertainment. We are not here simply to help you to feel a little bit better about yourself or to become a little bit better than once than what you once were. We're, we're not here so that you can develop a group of moral friends. We covenant together as a fellowship to help one another as children of light to walk in and abide in the light. We are here so that you might be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us if you are in Christ in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And so what we do together as a church is to help us to be who we now are in Jesus, to help us to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, to walk as children of the light. And that's what we see the church doing in verses one through three. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They're worshiping and serving the Lord and not themselves. They are fasting and praying to ask God, God, what is your will? Not, God, will you do this for me? Or God, what can I do for you? But God, what is your will? Because I want your will to be my will. I want your will to be our will. This is how we abide in the light. Through the fellowship of the saints, through prayer and the ministry of the word, through our worship and service to the Lord. This is how we encourage one another to, and build one another up so that we are continually casting off the works of darkness in our own lives, in our own hearts, and putting on the armor of light so that we might stand against the schemes of the devil. I hope you just know, I, I, like, we, we've gone this far and I have just quoted to you dozens of passages on light and darkness. As you can see here in verses one through three, there's this earnestness and an abiding hunger to do the will of God, to abide in the light, to live in fellowship with God who is light. And that abiding in the light is what compels them outward then to proclaim the light to those who walk in darkness. Guys, think about it this way. Imagine that you were born in a dungeon. It's damp, it's dark, it's a place of suffering and misery. Now there's one part of you that's like, that's all you've known. And so you're kind of comfortable with it. Your eyes adjust a little bit to the darkness. You think that this is just the way that life is. And you know just from talking to other people that there's no hope of escaping this on your own. You're just not getting out of it. This is life. This is the best you've got. So you might as well live it up, make the most of your time in the dungeon. Imagine how you would feel when somebody came and rescued you, delivered you out of this domain of darkness that you have been bound by and you have now been brought out into the light to behold the world around you anew for the first time. To see it for all of its glory, for all of its brightness, all the colors, all the life, all the glory that is life outside of that dungeon. Would you ever want to go back to living that way again? Would you ever want to return to the darkness? And what would your attitude be then towards the one who saved you? Knowing that you could not save yourself. 
Wouldn't you feel this overwhelming sense of of gratitude and praise and worship? Wouldn't you desire then to live for his glory and not your own? Wouldn't you long to just be with him and to live for the glory of his name? Well, friends, that's what we see happening here. This church in Antioch is earnestly seeking to walk in the light because they recognize just how great a salvation they have been given in being delivered from the domain of darkness. The truth that they proclaim to each other to build one another up and to help them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling is to remember who you once were apart from him and who you now are in him. And so walk in that. But now... Their deliverer, the God of light, says to them, I'm not done. I'm going back into the dungeon to rescue more people from every nation. I'm not going alone. I'm taking others with me. He set apart from among them Saul and Barnabas for this work that he has called them to. And if you thought about it in those categories... Would you not also just like totally want what your rescuer wanted? I mean, wouldn't that just excite you and overwhelm you to see his love that he would return back to rescue more people just as he had you? Wouldn't you be in full support of that? Wouldn't you want to go? And if you didn't go, wouldn't you be fully supportive of those who were going because you wanted to be a part of that? Wouldn't it remind you of what you have been delivered from and just how great a salvation you have been given and to really want that for those who are still in the chains of gloomy darkness? That was Paul's motivation. God had struck him temporarily blind once to help him to see his own darkness of pride and self-righteous legalism. But in God's mercy, something like scales had fallen from his eyes, and he beheld the glory of Christ, and it changed him. As he said of his call in Acts 26, Jesus set him apart to free people, to free them from the domain of darkness, to help them to see, to be transformed, to change, to turn away from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. He recognized that was his call. Friends, this is why we gather together as a church, and this is why we scatter in order to proclaim the light to the nations on mission. Because we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and have been transferred into the kingdom of Christ, the beloved son, the light of the world. This is why we are being transformed into his image and why we pursue that by the grace of God. That we actively want to be conformed into the image of him who is light. Because we want to be like him. We love our Savior. This is why we want to go. This is what compels us outward on mission. God's light overcoming darkness. But if you don't get that, if you don't get who we once were, and you don't get who we now are in him, that those who once walked in darkness have seen a great light, then then the church, then missions, none of that's going to make any sense to you. You're going to say it is optional. Take it or leave it. Jesus just helps me be a little better. The pursuit of Christ-likeness, the desire to live for his glory rather than your own, it's not gonna make sense unless you understand the distinction between darkness and light. We get it on a human level. We can see with our eyes. We know when it's nighttime. We know when it's day. We know when we're in a dark room. We know when the lights have been flipped on. But sometimes we don't get that. When we think about our relationship with the Lord, we don't see it in those terms. We see it as maybe like that fader's gone up just a little bit. It's a little bit brighter in the room than it was before, but, you know, basically, I'm okay. And so it's this abiding in the light that propels Saul and Barnabas outward to proclaim the light to the nations in verses 4 and 5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus, and then they arrived at Salamis. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. 
Eventually, they made their way across this 140-mile-wide island east to west until they arrived at the capital of Paphos. And I know that I've been talking here like in kind of like mysterious terms. I'm using biblical language here of light and darkness. And so you can look at that and be like, well, that's kind of, kind of cryptic. I don't, I don't really know. And then you look at the fact that, that the Holy Spirit is the one that sent them out. You might really kind of look at this as being like this really, really overtly mystical thing. You know, just like beam of light shining down from heaven, kind of leading you around, and you're like the you're like the dog or the cat that's chasing the laser across the room, kind of a deal. Think of it looking like that, but it's not a way that we ought to really understand it. I mean, they left Antioch and they headed west. Well, why did they head west with the gospel? Well, that's because when you look to the south, the gospel's already been there. You look to the east, the gospel's already been there. You look up north and Saul had been ministering in Tarsus and Sicilia and Arabia. So the gospel had already been there. So where we, where, where, where we got to go? Let's go west. Okay, go west, young man. There they go, right? And they, they go to the closest seaport where you can get anywhere, Seleucia. They get on a boat because they're, it's the Mediterranean. What are you going to do? And they sail for Cyprus, get off of the closest part of Salamis. Now, why would they want to go to Cyprus? Who was from Cyprus? Barnabas was from Cyprus. Huh, why would they want to go there? Why would Barnabas want to take the gospel to Cyprus? I wonder. Could it be that he didn't have family and friends and, and beloved kinsmen and countrymen there that he desperately wanted them to hear the gospel? So they land at the closest port of Cyprus and they gradually make their way across the island from east to west, proclaiming the light of Christ to those who were in darkness. And verse 5 tells us that they brought John Mark with them. We learn from Colossians chapter 4 that John Mark was actually a cousin to Barnabas. And he had accompanied them, Acts chapter 11, from their return journey to Jerusalem. So they went from Antioch to Jerusalem with that relief that they were sending for the famine that was going to take place. Right? They returned back sometime later. They brought John Mark with them. And so Barnabas has clearly taken John Mark under his wing. Come on, cousin, let's go. But he's discipling him along the way. He brought him on this journey to assist them in their ministry. So guys, this is leadership development that's taking place right here. And this makes sense, right? Because if Barnabas is from Cyprus and John Mark is his cousin, so more than likely they both have family there and they both would have known the culture and the context. But there's even more than that because John Mark is the one who would write the Gospel of Mark. So he was an eyewitness to the earthly ministry of Jesus. He actually heard Jesus teach. He saw the miracles that Jesus performed. More than likely, he was there when Jesus rose and appeared to his disciples. I mean, the, the church in Jerusalem met at his mom's house. And so he was there from the very establishment of the church on. So he's an eyewitness to the ministry of Christ. He's not there to assist them by doing their laundry. John Mark is to assist them in bearing witness to the light of the world. And where, you know, I mean, Paul's testimony, it's a little bit hard, right? Because they're like, Paul's like, yeah, the resurrected Jesus kind of appeared in a bright light to me, struck me blind. Well, you know, what kind of Kool-Aid were you drinking there, buddy? You know, they couldn't really argue as much with John Mark's testimony. Because he had been there during Jesus' earthly ministry. And so what you have here is you've got two affirmed church leaders and a leader in training going out with the specific purpose to proclaim the gospel and establish the church by the power of the Holy Spirit into a context where they have a relational and cultural foothold. So that's much less cryptic, isn't it? And in what would become a standard practice when they entered into a new city, Saul and Barnabas would start in the synagogues by proclaiming the word of God to the Jews. Now, there's a practical reason for this, and there's a theological reason for this. The practical is that like Saul, Barnabas, and John, these people are Jews. So there's a similar cultural context. There's more familiarity with God's word to begin with. Of course, they're trying to live 
what, as by what they understand to be the Word of God. And so you're already at a better starting place with them. Barnabas and John were likely to run into family while at least, uh, at least while they were there in Cyprus. And so this is low-hanging fruit for them. And the practice in the synagogues was to allow any man to come up and to read Scripture and to preach. And so they've got an open door to proclaiming the gospel and working from Old Testament Scripture to Christ, from where they were in that text and what they read to arguing for how Jesus was the Messiah, and they could do that over a course of time. They didn't have to like show up like they did, like the apostles did in Jerusalem, and they're at the temple and say, hey, you remember Jesus, right? He's the Lord in Christ. You crucified him, so repent and believe. They were actually able to take days or weeks explaining and arguing from Scripture how Jesus is the Christ. And so that's the practical reason. But here's the theological reason. The Jews had already received more light. Somebody's talking to me. <laughs> They'd already received more light. God had revealed himself to the Jews first. The Apostle Paul would describe in Acts chapter 9, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Friends, that's all light. And God had give that, given that in abundance to them. And so they have a clear understanding of God's nature and his character, his ways, his purposes and promises. They, they understand better his goodness, his beauty, his truth. They know that in him alone there is life and understanding and salvation. And though they have not seen the light completely, they have not seen it clearly because they have not seen it in the face of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, they're still closer. Though their religion and their piety is not enough to save them apart from faith in Christ. And though despite having been given God's word, they still remained in darkness. They were closer to the light and hopefully it would dawn upon them that Jesus Christ is the fountain of light. And in his light would they see light. But not only did they receive this light from God first, but God had also called them to be a light to the nations. And so as the apostles would go into new cities and regions with the light of the gospel, they would go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile because that's what God had done in giving his word and in sending his son. And friends, notice here that missions is not charitable works. It's proclaiming the word of God. Now, sacrificial deeds like education programs and medical clinics, orphan care and social justice ministries are very, very important. We just prayed for those. But they are the fruit of the gospel. They commend the gospel, but they are not the gospel. I've got to say this because people get confused. Jesus didn't die on a cross and rise again to make us all social workers. He died and rose again to transfer us from the domain of darkness into his kingdom. To deliver us by light. To be his disciples who then with that light that we've been given make disciples of all nations who abide in the light and who then proclaim the light. Friends, a candle holder is not a candle. Now, a candle holder can hold the candle high, but a candle holder can also obstruct us from the candle's light and the candle's heat. We can be so busy collecting firewood that we fail to throw it on the fire. Our good deeds are meant to serve the proclamation of the light in the midst of darkness, to fuel the fire of the glory of Christ so that it burns bright against the darkness of night. That's our priority and mission, to proclaim the light as those who are in the light. 
And so our mission to overcome darkness with the light of the gospel is fulfilled as we first proclaim the light. Second, it is fulfilled as we protect against darkness. Saul and Barnabas were sent out by the Holy Spirit because the people of Cyprus were in darkness. They went to the synagogues of the Jews proclaiming the word of God because the Jews, though closer to the light, were still in darkness. They made their way across the island from Salamis to Paphos because the people throughout, whether it be Jewish magicians like Elymas or Roman proconsuls like Sergius Paulus or anyone else in between, including Barnabas' own relatives, were in darkness. They were not in a neutral state before God. It's not as if God would not hold them responsible for living in the darkness as long as they never heard the light of Christ. This is big because people believe that. This is big because people from other nations often believe that. As long as I'm in ignorance, it's okay, it's bliss. I can live in the darkness and I can still be saved apart from the light coming and being made known among us. Because if that was the case, if a person could be saved apart from the light of the gospel, then we're better off leaving them alone. There's no need for discipleship. There's no need for missions at all. We'd be better off just shutting our mouths. If a person could be saved apart from receiving the light of the gospel, then the worst thing that we could do to them is to proclaim the light of the glory of Christ because that would then make them responsible for the amount of light that they've been given. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate that. And, it, and honestly, like if, if Barnabas and John Mark really love their granny, then the last thing that they would want to do is go take the gospel to Cyprus. Paul says, hey, let's go to Cyprus. Like, no, 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 let's not. Let's go the other way. Because if they did that, they're running the risk of condemning their family. But if the light of the gospel is the only hope, then they would want to charge into the darkness to do all that they could to see them delivered to see them come to know the truth and beauty of Jesus. But our job is not done once the light is initially proclaimed. I mean, I wish it was the case where all you had to do is go into a new context, say, Jesus is the light of the world. Light went on, and we are able to go on and kind of move on, and that light stays on. Never changes. Light bulb never burns out. Power never shuts off. No one switches the light back down. It's just permanently on. But that's not the case because this war is not static. Our enemy, the devil, goes roaring about like a lion. This ruler of this present world is at work. The ruler of this present darkness is actively opposing the light, seeking to deprive Christ the glory that is due his name. He seeks to do that not only outside the church for those who do not know Christ, but within the church as well. And he seeks to do that not through just physical terms either. We, we can see this present darkness actively at work right here in this text. In verse 6, says that when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought uh, to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here you see the darkness wanting to keep others captive in the darkness. You got two men here that are in two different places spiritually, but both of them are in darkness. Sergius Paulus was the Roman governor of this province of Cyprus. He's a man of importance and high standing, a man of intelligence according to Luke's description of him. 
And as Saul and Barnabas are gradually making their way across his territory, this is not a quick in and out, proclaim the gospel and get out. This is not a covert mission where it's like, let's sneak in, turn a light on, and run back out. They're making their way across, making disciples as they go. And as they are doing that, word gets out to this governor of what they're doing. And as they're making their way towards him, towards the city of Paphos, the, the capital city, they, he knows he's coming, and, and he's able to actually go and find them once they enter into the city. He's able to summon them to come. He's got enough information about this word of God that he actually wants to hear it. So this is not some super fast five-minute gospel presentation and out. No, they're making disciples as they go across this span of 100 miles, and word is getting out. He's hearing. He wants to hear it. Though he's in darkness, he's seeking the light. He's open to the light. Elemis is a different story, however. This guy's a magician, and, and now, he's not an illusionist, like a guy who pulls rabbits out of hats. He, he practices dark magic. This is the occult. This is, this is someone who, who, whether by sacrifice to idols or divination or, or fortune-telling or omens or sorcery or charms or perhaps serving as a medium or a wizard or a necromancer, meaning one who speaks to the dead, he is standing in opposition to the Word of God. And Deuteronomy 18 says that these guys, these folks, these false prophets, these, these people who practice these kinds of things, these magicians, they're, they're an abomination to the Lord, and they are condemned by God because they are not speaking the word of God. It's not like it's in real competition for God, like, ooh, you, God's scared, right? It's like magic is pretty bad, pretty heavy, like, might, might affect what I'm trying to do here. No, it's that it stands in contradiction to who God is and how he's revealed himself to be. These were false prophets who would lead others away from truth into darkness, into immorality, into confusion, into deception and death. Elemis is called a false prophet not because he prophesies or he gives wrong prophecy about future events, but because he stands in opposition to the word of God. He stands contrary to the true prophet of God, who like Moses would come from the people and not only speak the word of God, but would himself embody the word of God. And so this man is an antichrist. Again, don't think devil with a pitchfork. Think someone who stands in opposition to Christ. He's antichrist. And worse yet, this man is a Jew. So he knew from God's law that his life stood in contradiction with the will and ways of God, and he could care less. He's got his own thing going on, and it's pretty good. Now, perhaps he syncretistically mixed elements of Judaism with the magic of, of other pagan religions, but honestly, he didn't care because look at where he is. Look at his station. I mean, he's in with the proconsul, so that means that he's a spiritual advisor to Sergius Paulus. He's making a name for himself. You know how you get to be an advisor for, for a big name you know, politician, right? It's a matter of like the number of people that listen to your podcasts or you know, how big your church is or you know, whatever. You know, so he's a big name in Cyprus. Sergius Paulus has him on his team there of advisors, and, and he doesn't want to lose that. Says his name is also called Bar Jesus, Bar meaning son, Jesus meaning God saves. And so, ironically, his name is the Son of God saves. And yet, he's standing in opposition to Christ. He wanted to turn Sergius Paulus away from the faith. Friends, this is what darkness seeks to do to turn you away from the faith. If Satan cannot keep the light of the gospel bound by persecution or by keeping these people tucked away on an island somewhere not to be found or by convincing the church that missions is optional or only for a select few, if he can erode the faith of Christians with doubts or questions or erode the authority of God's word 
or, or destroy the spiritual vitality of the church through unholy living or unhealthy discipleship or self-absorbed attendees or self-reliant leaders, then Satan will try to deceive through false religions by eroding the authority of God's word or by trying to win government leaders over to keep nations and territories close to the gospel, close to the light, to keep them bound in darkness. And that's what's happening here. The darkness is actively opposing the light and seeking to keep people in darkness. And so in verse 9, but Saul, who is also called Paul, it's not like Paul changed his name, okay? It's not like, like man, I feel really bad about my past. I want to cover that up a little bit, so I'm going to change the S to a P. No, no, Paul was just his Greek name. Saul was his Hebrew name, right? So he's Saul Paul, right? He's going by his middle name now, I guess, because he's speaking to Gentiles, right? So Paul, who, or Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you know what, that's okay. These people are saved apart from any faith at all anyway. God is love, and, and he's just going to accept everybody. Or, no, no, that's fine. You believe whatever works for you. You know, as long as you're genuine about your faith, it doesn't really matter what it is. All roads lead to God. Or, or you know, as long as you're genuine, the faith, you know, Christ will, will his sacrifice will be applied to you. Or, or here, better yet, why don't you take some of the elements of, of my Christianity and just mix it in with what you believe and, and call it good. That's not what he says at all, is it? What he says stands in stark opposition to universalism that says that all people would be saved apart from whatever faith they believe, stands in complete contradiction to pluralism, which would say that Jesus is just one way to God, and as long as you have some kind of faith that you're saved. What he says here stands against the idea of relativism, where it's like all you have to do is find something that works for you, and then you're good. Or syncretism, let's just take little elements of Christianity and just mix it in in like a little potpourri of, of all sorts of faiths, and, and, and that'll be my faith. This stands against the idea of inclusivism, which would say as long as your faith in something is genuine, then the sacrifice of Christ will be applied to you by the work of the Holy Spirit, apart from you ever hearing and receiving and accepting the gospel. He says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of God? When you stand in opposition to true Christianity, to the true faith, then you are the son of a devil. Again, don't, don't think, you know, Hollywood, paranormal, you know, metaphysical, somehow you're going to sprout horns and fangs and a tail, bat wings or whatever it looks like. None of that. But that you are, your characteristics, you bear the characteristics of the adversary, the one who is opposed to all that reflects the nature and character of God. That which is, it reflects his purposes and promises. That which is light. It's loving darkness. The one who in his heart longs for the death of others. Not because he's a physical murderer, but that he will do all that you can because he doesn't doesn't believe that God is ultimately going to punish you, that you won't spend eternity in hell apart from Christ, and so just go ahead and live it up. That's wanting somebody's death. This is one who, in his heart, longs for lies and deceit and falsehood and making his life about other things because he doesn't want the truth because there's no truth in him. He's one who acts out of his own immoral and ungodly character, the one who tries to deviate from and confuse the gospel is an enemy of all righteousness, a villain full of deceit because he tries to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And friends, there are many, many who do this. And I'm not simply referring to the blatant heretics the one to distort, the one to actively stand opposed to the doctrine of God, but those who love darkness more than light, who, can, who are confused about the faith themselves and lead others into confusion away from the sure and true paths of God. 
And friends, this is a big deal because there are many who claim the name Bar-Jesus, that the Son of God saves, but who actually live as a son of the adversary, as a son of the slanderer, as a son of the accuser, as a son of the devil. Though they claim to be Christians out of confusion or out of deception, out of a twisting and a perverting of the faith, either by their lives or by their doctrine, they are making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And friends, it's not just out there. Far too often, we, the church, look more like Elemas than we do like Paul. Rather than abiding in the light, rather than being filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the light, to adorn the light of the gospel with our lives, to live in ways that that make the glory of the Christ known to the world around us, rather than striving by God's grace to be imitators of God as his beloved children, either out of our own willful ignorance or our own laziness or our pride, we actually push back against the glory of Christ with our lives. I got freedom in Christ, so it doesn't really matter. Live how I want. And so what we do is we pervert, we distort, we twist the grace of God into licentiousness. We deceive ourselves into into excusing or justifying our sin because we don't truly want righteousness. We want to live how we want to live. And in doing that, we make ourselves enemies of righteousness, presuming upon the grace of God. And when we do that, we make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Friends, when you're dishonest and you hide your sin, when you follow the lies of this world, when you're indifferent to the state of your own soul and the souls of others, when you seek to live for your own glory rather than the glory of Christ in these and in many, many other ways, we resemble sons of the devil rather than sons of Jesus. We're actively choosing darkness. And again, it's because we misunderstand what darkness is and what light is meant to do in our lives. Or maybe we want to go through life where Sergius Paulus is at. This is, this is far better, right? We want to be somebody important. We want to call the shots We want to be considered by others to be men and women of intelligence. And yeah, we're even eager to hear the word of God. Come on, I'll I'll come and and hear this. I, I want to hear it. But if you stop right there, Sergius Paulus is still in darkness. Or maybe like the Jews, I want to be religious. I want to be moral. I want people to think well of me. I want to outwardly do the things of God. I want to feel like I'm more righteous than other people. That that what I do for God really contributes to my state before him. And that because I'm from the right stock and because I do these right things for him, regardless of where my heart is, then he has to save me. I've earned it. But friends, the Jews were still in darkness too. And so in verse 11, in his mercy, God shows Elymas his true blindness, his true darkness. It says, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Friends, make no mistake about it. God will justly judge all who remain in darkness. It will be forever. It will be horrible. Living in sin and misery and despair for all eternity. But what we have right here is a merciful foreshadowing of that eternal judgment. And I say that it is merciful because the blind Elemas who loved darkness and who actively tried to keep other people in darkness was struck 
blind for a time. This is an opportunity for him to repent and to see the light. And you look at this and you're like, why? I mean, this guy is actively opposing Christ. He is standing against the gospel of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The man deserves death. Why didn't God just strike him dead? It's not like he couldn't. It's not like he didn't deserve it. It's not like he didn't earn it. But why did he not? Why did he just strike him blind for a time? It's because God is merciful. As if you ever thought to yourself, I think this all the time, why does God allow false teaching to continue? Why doesn't God actively just kill everything that would deviate from the gospel? So wouldn't that be easier? It's because God is merciful. Because even here in this judgment, God is giving Elymas an opportunity to repent and believe the gospel. It's amazing. And we don't know what happened to Sergius Paulus. We don't know, or I'm sorry, Elymas. We don't know what the outcome of this is because it, it, the story walks away from him. But we do know what happened to the other man in this story who was struck blind. That Saul, when he was struck blind because of his own sin, because of the fact that he walked in darkness and was trying to keep other people in darkness, God struck him blind and it led him to repent of his sin and believe the gospel. And God not only restored his sight, but brought him into the light to abide in, to proclaim, and to protect that light. That's the mercy of God. We're meant to see those guys in contrast. It's meant to, to pose the question to you, which one will you be? Which one will you choose? Are you going to remain in darkness knowing that this is who you are apart from Christ? Or will you, like Saul, receive the light? Friends, this is why we need the church. This is why we sing. This is why we pray. This is why we sit under the preaching and teaching of the word of God. This is why we have community groups and life transformation groups so that we will be able to stand against darkness without and fight darkness within. Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, that gets you amped, but what kind of strongholds is he talking about? We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, raised against the light, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is what we do in the church and this is what we do on mission. This is what we do in discipleship. When through the inspired scripture we teach and reprove and correct and train in righteousness. When we rebuke the false teacher. When we evangelize the lost. And when we edify the church. But no matter who we are or where we are at. We are waging war. We are fighting this good fight of faith. And not just on the front end. But throughout the Christian life. And sometimes that will look like a stiff rebuke towards a false teacher. That, that that's what protecting from darkness looks like here, like what we see with happening with Elemis, but not always. There's not just one gear for the church. Some people have a hard time with this. They think that my job is just to rebuke, 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 right? It's just you're the son of the devil. Everybody's the son of the devil. Anytime you sin, it's son of the devil. Go to your LTG and guy comes up to you and he's just like, he's heartbroken, you know, he's weeping and stuff. And he's just like, man, just pray for me. I'm trying to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And you're like, son of the devil. You know, it's like, everything's the devil. It's like, no, we're not Westboro. We're not witch hunters here. We've got to have more than one speed. We've got to think about what we're doing here. Look at how Paul responded to Sergius Paulus. He didn't respond to Sergius Paulus in the same way he responded to Elymas. 
Though Sergius Paulus was hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world, Sergius Paulus came to faith through the teaching of the Lord. Verse 12 says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He believed, not because he saw a miracle in Elymas being struck blind, but because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So this is not some five-minute gospel presentation, and then he had all that he would ever need. Just kind of get in and get out. He's good to go. This is not a come-to-Jesus moment, and then he's, he's fine from that point on. No, God did a work within his heart so that when he heard the word of God, when he received the teaching of the Lord, and I see that as a bigger body of teaching that took some time. It's discipleship. He saw the light and he was amazed. He was overwhelmed. The light had overcome the darkness in his heart, in the heart of this Roman proconsul, despite all of the efforts and all of the attempts of this magic advisor to keep him in darkness. Because the gospel cannot be overcome. But just because the book of Acts leaves Sergius Paulus behind, don't think that this story is over. Don't think that he got all the light he needed right then and there, and now he's fine from this point forward. Because in the not-too-distant future, Barnabas and John would return to Cyprus to establish the church there as a pillar and buttress of truth to protect these new believers from turning again to the darkness as they continued to abide in and proclaim the light. And so the church's mission It's not just to proclaim the light, but to abide in the light, spread the light, protect the light in such a way that new churches are started for the continuation of that mission of abiding and proclaiming and protecting both for the children of light and for those who still walk in darkness. And so, whether we have been called to send others or to be sent, This is the church's priority and missions. And I hope you can see that it applies not just to unbeliever, but believer and unbeliever alike. Our mission is to overcome darkness with the light of the gospel. I hope you've come to see just how dark darkness is and just how glorious light is. We do this by proclaiming the proclamation of the light and by fighting to protect against the darkness, both for our souls and for the souls of others. Friends, see darkness for what it is. See it for all of its gloom, all of its despair, all of its misery, and how it is futile and cannot survive, it cannot satisfy, it cannot compare to the glory of God. Christ. I hope that this serves to fuel our abhorrence of the darkness and our joy in the light. May it lead to our rejoicing in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the light of the world. May it lead to us not only to earnestly desire to walk in the light with all of our lives, but also it would compel us outward to take the light of the gospel to those who are walking in darkness. Because this is what a true understanding of this war results in. May the gospel produce that in us by God's grace and for his glory so that we as children of light will walk in the light. We will be who we now are in Christ both as we go and as we stay for the glory of the light because our mission is to overcome darkness with the light of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. I pray that it would truly come to bear in our lives. That when we think about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that accomplished on our behalf, that it has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into this kingdom of light, that our eyes would be open to see just how dark darkness really is how glorious Jesus is. 
I pray that that would motivate us as we think about what it means to now be called your children, children of light, as those who abide in the light, who have fellowship with the light, who love and serve the light. You are the light. The light of this world has dawned and darkness will not overcome it. And so, Lord, may we run to that, not, not love the darkness, not try to tiptoe between dusk, right, the, the light and night. May we instead run in full day, casting off these works of darkness. And may it compel us outward to others who have been captive, enslaved, to do its will. What a privilege we have been given. I can only hope that we can see it. And I can trust in that, not because of anything that I've said, but because Christ is more than sufficient. Your word and spirit are powerful and at work. And you will bring everything to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. When every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to your glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.